Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True. And I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to providing these transformational tools to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. If you'd like to learn more or feel inspired to become a supporter, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Mark Nepo. Mark Nepo is a poet, philosopher, and the author of more than 20 books, who has taught in the fields of poetry and spirituality for over 35 years. As a cancer survivor, Mark devotes his writing and teaching to the journey of inner transformation and the life of relationship. With Sounds True, Mark has published the award-winning Things That Join the Sea and Sky and a new book called Drinking from the River of Light, The Life of Expression. Mark Nepo is one of the most prolific transformational writers that I know. And in this conversation, he shares why. Not because he's writing about what he knows, but because he's writing about what is alive for him in his experience and in his heart at the moment, what's alive that he wants to explore further. For anyone like me who wants to deepen their life of expression, this is a tremendously insightful and helpful conversation with Mark Nepo. Your new book, Mark, with Sounds True, is on the life of expression. And that's what I want to talk with you about. So to begin with that phrase, the life of expression, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so you you know from my work that um, and just from our friendship, you know, I'm a long-term, over 30 years cancer survivor. And and I think my whole understanding of expression got turned upside down when I was blessed to make it through all that. You know, before that, I was a driven young artist, um, you know, hoping if I worked hard enough, maybe, maybe, maybe I'd write one or two great poems and contribute something. And, you know, then all of a sudden... Um, expression was a rope I climbed every day to still be here. Forget writing great things, forget anybody reading them. It became part of how to be here. And so on the other side, I was open to really, uh, the healing journey of expression rather than the journey to produce great art. And and so that led me to this whole kind of different way of, of, of feeling about it all. And I, and I think, you know, one of the kind of images that's central to the whole journey of the book, and this gathers, you know, a lifetime of, of, 
of learning as an artist and teaching uh, around the arts. But that, you know, as we're breathing right now, we, we can't choose. You can't just say, well, I'm just going to inhale for the next hour. No, we don't, we don't have that option. And, and so the way the heart breathes is when, we in, when the heart inhales, it feels and perceives. And then it doesn't really matter how or what way, but I believe that each soul has to discover and inhabit a personal form of expression. And I mean that, so this really broadens the notion of the arts. It's just, just not our, our formal arts or the arts we're typically used to. I mean, because really in this sense, everything is an art. You know, making dinners once a month for your friends is an art. Uh, you know, stamp collecting is an art. Um, gardening. And anything that you give your whole heart to and that you can express and, and what is expressed is not depressed. Or we should say it the other way, what is not expressed is depressed. So, mm-hmm. so all of this is, is really about exploring. Um, and, and I do feel that, you know, chances are if I devote myself to a wholehearted uh, form of expression, of personal expression, chances are what comes out will be useful maybe even beautiful, uh, certainly substantial and strong. Uh, but if I, if I strive to create something beautiful, it may not be life-giving. That's interesting. So part of what you're saying is that the, the striving in and of itself might not deliver in the same way because of the very nature of striving. Can you say more about that? Yeah. So, so I think that, you know, one of the things we're so in our, in our modern world, um, you know, the manufacturing imprint is so insidious on all our endeavors that we turn everything into a product. And I found for me, for me that as soon as I do that, I'm no longer, you know, I'm in an I it relationship with it. I'm no longer engaged, really, though I'm attending, and 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 not really growing for retrieving it or having it move through me. So, like I learned, I remember this is you know my father, as you know, is gone now, um, about four or five years. But you know, he was a master woodworker, and um, and I remember watching him. You know, it's interesting. I have all these kind of lessons that are coming after he's gone, um, where things that I think he didn't know he was teaching me. And I didn't know I was learning, but all these years later, huh, you know, ah, and I think one was that, you know, I remember being, he had his basement shop and where he would always so be so happy working down there on anything. And he used to make, I mean, he built this 30 foot catch that I spent a lot of my youth on. But, but after that, he his one of his hobbies, his loves was to get literal blueprints for sailing ships from the 1800s and make scale models of them. And so I remember sitting on the basement steps. He didn't know I was watching him. I might've been nine or 10. And, and he was so immersed with tweezers, like, you know, putting little rigging on this ship, you know? And I think what he taught me there, it wasn't about excellence. It was about immersion. 
that he gave himself so wholeheartedly that I had this mysterious sense, even as a nine and 10 year old, that, wow, like he was in the moment of everyone who ever built a ship. And that mm-hmm. was the reward for immersion was the participation in oneness and the byproduct was excellence. So I can, I can focus on excellence and not really be connected. But if I am immersed wholeheartedly, not only will I be connected and the, and the byproduct probably will be, it'll be pretty good. Now, Mark, you know, one of the things that comes up for me when I hear a phrase like the life of expression is, is it actually possible or even the goal to be fully expressed in every part of your life? Meaning, you know, you talked about your father and maybe he felt fully expressed in those moments when he was working on these models, but maybe other parts of his life, eh, you know, not so fully expressed. Or, you know, I think of it more personally in in my own life. There are moments in a day, that was a moment when I really expressed myself. There are lots of other moments where I feel partial, partially expressed in this moment, partially, partially, partially. So I'm curious Mm -hmm. what you think about this idea of living in a way where we're fully expressed all the time. Is that even realistic? Well, I don't, I don't, I I don't even think that that's possible because we are human. So I I agree with you. And that's why I think we really do need to discover and inhabit and relate to a personal form of expression so that we have a place where it's more likely to happen than not. Because I don't think, you know, for me, I don't believe in a, 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 you know, a permanent state of enlightenment or fully, you know, awake all the time, or like you're saying, you know, fully expressed all the time. I mean, maybe it's possible. I don't know, but that's not been my experience on earth so far. And so, no, we, you know, medieval monks, when asked how they practice their faith would say by falling down and getting up. And so, yeah, that, that's been more my experience that I'm, you know, I'm clear today. I might be clear while we're talking and I'll get off and I'll bumble around, you know, and, and I won't be able to express any of this tomorrow. <laughs> I might have, probably have to relearn it. And so I, I think that's why we're, when we can and when we're wholehearted and we hold nothing back, uh, you know, then we come into moments or maybe even long moments, maybe if we're blessed even, you know, hours where we we are fully awake, fully present, wholehearted, and then we fall down and then we slip. But, you know, uh, we can, when the daylight comes, you can't see the stars, but having seen them, we can navigate and find our way. So, or, you know, Maimonides, the great Jewish, uh, you know, philosopher and doctor from the 1100s, you know, one of the things he said is, you know, we are all, we're all just like, blind travelers who we, we see by a flash of lightning and then we make our way in the dark till the next flash. And, and so that's why I think it's even more important to find a way that, and, and let me also, this is interesting. I think really interesting that um, I think our, what, what I'm uh, kind of drawn to is to want to be thorough and thorough doesn't mean you know, uh, you know, like if I say I love you, do you really care if I sing it in perfect pitch or if I cough it? You know, I'm still being thorough. And so 
it, it, what matters more is our wholeheartedness than whether we do it well. Yeah, I mean, it's beautiful, Mark. I notice as you offer that answer, there's a part of me that really softens, you know, here in a moment of vulnerability, even having a discussion about the life of expression, what comes up for me, and I'm sure you encounter this in all of the teaching work you do with different circles of people who are at different phases of their life of expression, whether it's their writing life or some part of their creative life. It's just a feeling of like, God, you know, I wish I was more expressed in this way. I wish I was more expressed. And now I'm talking to Mark, the great, you know, he's written more than 20 books. But when you, when you talk about, you know, uh, this life of expression as uh, coming and going like the sun and then the, its disappearance in the night sky, I notice I just, I feel relaxed and invited in instead of less than. And I wonder if listeners might feel that way too. And your readers. Well, I think this is, you know, and you know, all my work is, is about um, the, you know, the total, the devotion to the messy, magnificent human journey. You know, we, we can't get out of it. It's flawed. It's beautiful, you know, and, and, and it's everything. And how do we help, you know, how do we help each other through that? You know, really, and being expressive doesn't mean that we're always vocal, you know, um, it's it's more I think an essence of wholehearted presence, whenever how, however and whenever that appears. So I I remember I was once in a group of people. It was a, you know people with different callings, but we were you know professionally like sharing our life's callings and meeting every you know a couple of times a year for a while. And and there was this amazing woman who she was part of a group. She worked for a nonprofit that. Uh, would care for orphans uh, of conflicts and wars and things. And uh, they would just swoop in and didn't matter what side, they weren't taking sides, they were caring for those left behind it. And everybody shared about their work and then it was her turn. And um, and she was just, you know, she was so quiet. I mean, she literally didn't say anything. And you could, and, and everybody kind of in the circle, about 12 people, everybody kind of leaned and giving their full attention and, listening and listening and she you could see her come from some deep well of experience and come to the verge of words and then go back and come and go back and after about three or four minutes she hadn't said a word Tammy and she sighed and she said that's all I can share and everybody got it (laughs) so like some mysterious way, you know, she, even though she couldn't say a word, she was still beautifully expressive. That's a great story. Now, Mark, there's a quote from the book, Drinking from the River of Light, The Life of Expression, where you're really setting the stage for some of the unfolding to come. And you write, all expression has two noble intentions to try to say what is unsayable and to bear witness to what is. And I wonder if you can unpack both of those parts, trying to say what is unsayable and to bear witness to what is. Sure. So, so on the one hand, the 
saying what is unsayable is I think the purpose of all art in all its forms is, is in some way to try to surface what is essential, what is ineffable, what is, you know, under everything, you know, that we have the physical world, but in a way you could say that the roots of all the physical is the invisible. It's the things that matter like love and, and spirit and, you know, life force and, you know, you can go on and on. Where are they? You can't hold, where are they? They're like wind. You, you can't hold them or like light. You can't see light except for what it illuminates. So all the forces that hold us and support us are invisible. So, you know, the purpose of metaphor, for instance, is to try to, in a, in a word picture, bring into view what's hard to see or what's hard to keep in view, you know? So, you know, I can say that, um, you know, the effort to, to, to love that emanates from our heart, what is that like? Well, I, I can, you know, the first metaphor that comes is like the sun because the sun emanates light and warmth in all directions without preference. And that's what our heart does. It emanates love and warmth in all directions without preference. And then in our humanness, we, we're the ones who make decisions. Well, that's not trustworthy over there. And this person hurt me. But the heart, that, that inner sun never stops emanating. So how do we talk about the things that matter that you really can't see? Well, that's where we're trying to say what's unsayable. And, and let me come back to that in a minute about, about the, the learnings from that journey. But the other is a bearing witness is, you know, in the world, in the surface world, and, and with the beautiful things and the difficult, horrible things that we do to each other, um, then we're just asked to bear witness. And a great, I think I, I use this in the book, there's a Pablo Neruda, the great Pablo Neruda, the Chilean poet, when he was in his 30s, he was in Spain during the Spanish Civil War, and and he saw terrible things, you know, and, and in a poem of his, um, he has these lines that say, and here he was a master uh, metaphor maker, he had these lines that said, the blood of the children on the sidewalk is like the blood of children on a sidewalk. And, you know, what he powerfully says there to me, I mean, I didn't talk to him, what do I know? But this is what it says to me. And what it says to me is, no, what, you know, if we use a metaphor there, we're putting something between us and what we're bearing witness to. And when, when something is really right there, our job is to say it as it is. No, no. The blood of children on the sidewalk, you don't have to go any further. It's like the blood of children on a sidewalk, which is different than trying to say, well, what is the force, life force like? How do we say this over here, which is invisible? And so those are, I think, kind of the two major things. And again, not, not just in creating poetry, but in, in the language of, of our relationships. I think this is at work, too. How, how do we find an honorable way in our relationships, in our, our, our intimate lives, in our work lives, um, to say what is when we see it, and to somehow try to honor, you know, like, you know, in our friendship, in my love with Susan, and how do I, how do I talk about what holds us together that's not seeable? That, that's 
the metaphor. So, so to go back for a minute to that process, um, you know, when I was a young writer, young poet, and this is, I think, very typical, um, archetypal, you know, in the beginning, I would see something and I'd try to say it and I'd write something and I'd look at it and I'd go, that's not even close. I'd miss, but I could see it. So then I'd try again and I, well, no, that's not it either. You know, I'd try five, six, seven times. And of course I was learning my craft, learning my art, but in the beginning that would frustrate me. I would say, my God, I see it. Why can't I, why can't I match what I'm seeing by what I say? Well, but when I was able to understand that the only thing worth writing about is, is saying is what's unsayable when we're not bearing witness, then it all shifted. And I thought, wow, now I think, wow, look, look how many poems I was gifted by this one thing that's unsayable. And it's still there waiting for me to relate to it. But it gave me all these other poems. And, and that's what often happens is we, we, it's a gift that we can't reach what we're trying to say or what we see because of all that it gives us. You know, one of the things you offer in the new book, Drinking from the River of Light, is various prompts, various writing prompts and suggestions to help people get in there and, and dig out their own gold, if you will. Uh, it's a metaphor that occurred to me right here. Uh, <laughs> joking with you, Mark. But uh, so what would you suggest as some possible prompts for somebody who says, you know, God, I'm sitting on a vat of unsayable material. I know it, but you know, look, it's unsayable. How do I get in there and start giving expression to it? Well, I think the first thing, and you know, there are a lot, a lot, you know, like you said, there's every chapter has, has prompts that will help folks uh, personalize all this. And, um, but I would say the first thing is to, um, you know, if you're interested in, in the, uh, becoming a little more familiar with your own expression, then then I would offer like every day or, or every other day, you know, first I'll start a journal and like, it doesn't have to be, Oh my God, a journal. I don't have time. What am I going to do? You know, you brush your teeth every day and you don't even think about it. So even you know, start out with five minutes and then fine every other day. And then it'll become a space that has, that takes up space in your life where you can be in this ongoing conversation between you and life. And then I think the first two ways that I would offer as a practice, like, you know, um, you know, would be one is to look before you in the world, just look at whatever's in front of you and give your full attention to it. Describe it as closely as you can without any intent of turning it into something magnificent or to have magnificent meaning, just simply look at what's before you that, that, that is somehow calling you or some detail, a bird, a, you know, a piece of driftwood, uh, you know, a food wrapper that's blowing down the sidewalk, you know, anything and describe it as in detail as you can. And the, and that's the part of bearing witness. That's practicing bearing witness. And the other is then to look inward. Whatever feeling is moving through you at that moment, it might be contentment, it might be agitation, 
It might be curiosity. I, you know, I, I don't know what it might be that day. And uh, it might be a tenderness or a vulnerability, like you were saying earlier. And then try to paint that feeling with words. Try, just like you were looking at something outside as detailed as you could, just take, you know, a few minutes and just try to describe that feeling that's invisible but very real and try to give words. And, and that's very much like going, I mean, that's how a lot of poems have always come to me. I feel something and I go, it's like, it's like, what is it like? Oh, it's like, and then something shows itself. And then I follow it. So I think that that's a way to start in very small step to um, become familiar you know, again, going back to about how the heart breathes is this expression of how your heart, the expression of your heart breathes. First, it's just to not say, oh, I got to be creative and create something. More is pay attention and relate to how your heart inhales and exhales by what you move through and by. You know, one of the interesting sections of the book for me had to do with something that you called indigenous perception in order to describe an experience that you had. And uh, I'd love for you to share that experience with our listeners and talk about the depth of that level of perception. Because I think sometimes when you say something like, you know, describe what you see, someone might start out at a certain surface level but you yeah. actually point to a deeper possibility. So um, I know exactly what you're talking about with the indigenous. I don't remember the example I used. Do you remember? But if I can give yeah, another one, but I know about, yeah. you were talking about when you were in your in right in the midst of your cancer journey, and an experience you had where you couldn't move because you would develop a terrible migraine because of a spinal. Oh path. yes. Yes. And you were very, very still, very, very present. And then what happened? Yeah. So this was, thank you for the, the remembrance trigger. So, um, yeah, so this was, I, I was, ha I needed to have a bone marrow sampling and spinal tap on the same day and, um, which wasn't fun. And, uh, and then I was told, you know, I think it's better today, but this was 30 years ago. And you had to lie still after a spinal tap for six to eight hours so the spinal fluid could regenerate, have time to regenerate, because otherwise you would you would quickly get a migraine headache. Well, of course, I didn't stay still and I got all kinds of headaches. And then finally it was like, okay, you get it, don't move. So I couldn't, you know, I had to be still for hours. And, and I was living out where I was living at the time, which was home then, and we had an apple tree out in the front yard and, um, you know, I'd seen it hundreds of times, but I hadn't really listened to it, you know, and that's like, what do you mean? Listen to a tree. Well, this is what I mean about the life of expression is, you know, not to just mentally perceive it, grasp it, you know, conceptualize it, but to be in relationship to it. So it took me being down and, and being forced to move, not to move to be open to a deeper way of perceiving in which, you know, so then I was, you know, there and the tree, you know, not in words, obviously, but the tree, you know, really was talking to me and the tree was saying without saying, um, when you get through this, 
um, no more making anything up. You're just going to talk, you you know, you're just going to speak to the miracle of things as they are. And of course, the big thing for me at that time in the middle of it was that the tree said, when you get through this, not if. So, so that perked me up. And, uh, but this is, you know, what I mean about indigenous perception is being open to experiencing the life in front of us, visible and non-visible, and being open to more than just the way, the ways we're already accustomed to listening. You know, when I'm, you know, in my, you know, I can just within our normal kind of Western perception, I can, I can be, uh, you know, narrow and in a hurry and not even, I, not even be open. And then I still myself and then I, I can, I can, ex, you know, perceive a vastness, but I'm only doing it from my mind. It's better than being narrow minded. But that's only one aspect of perception. And it's like, you know, the example of my father, he wasn't just trying to be excellent. He was drawn to immerse his whole being. And then so much more came. And so I was forced because of exhaustion and pain to really be still, to stop naming everything, to stop grasping everything around me. And then I was finally free to be in relationship in dialogue, in felt dialogue with, with the things around me. And then all of a sudden, oh, I'm, the tree is talking. Well, what does that mean? Well, I don't know how to describe what it means, except that I was receiving that there was something going between me and the tree. And, you know, Martin Buber, the great Jewish philosopher, talks about this as, I vow that when we are fully present, and we regard the things around us as authentic living centers, that we're not just the one center. Then he says, you know, uh, the, the unrehearsed dialogue uh, of the presence of God comes in the unrehearsed dialogue between two living centers. So this is how, you know, in, in you know, the Aboriginal uh, down in Australia, tribes have their their notions of song lines, the dream lines of the tribe over generations lead them, uh, and and dream work too comes in here. In partnership for the first time, Sounds True and Lululemon Social Impact Program, Here to Be, are proud to present Sean Korn's new book, Revolution of the Soul, Awaken to Love Through Raw Truth, Radical Healing, and Conscious Action. A journey and guidebook for inner evolution in the service of real world change. To read a sample, watch free videos with Sean Korn, and to learn more, visit revolutionofthesoulbook.com. Now, you know, Mark, you've been at this a long time. So since (laughs) that, you know, tree spoke to you, you know, no more making things up, just write what you actually experience. But here our listener says, 
I want to go connect in the natural world and write in that kind of way, not on the surface, but in a, in a deep listening, a deep connection. I know you've written a book, 10,000 ways to listen. How would you recommend <laughs> that person listen and attune so that their writing isn't some type of superimposition, but is actually coming from a genuine relatedness? Well, I think that I, I think the thing that w- that I would offer is to th- this sense, and there is a chapter in here that that we relate more than we author. You know that that really what we write um, is the trail of a conversation with life, rather than I'm creating something out of nothing, which is again a very Western model where we install ourselves as a a, a tiny replica of God and say, I'm creating. And, and so I think, you know, in a very, uh, real way, it's like when, when I was also starting as a young writer, you know, like everyone, I was taught to look for good material. Well, again, on the other side of my cancer journey, everything that I don't have to look for material. Everything is miraculous. The miracle is in everything. And what I have to do is be present and move at the pace of what is real. And then all of a sudden, oh, we all know those moments when we finally slow down and everything starts to be extra real or glow or there's that, there's that light on a branch in the wind that you just can't stop looking at. You know, for some reason, that branch you know, or that bird, you know, all of a sudden, uh, something, you know, holds our attention and just doesn't hold it, but opens up kind of the connections between things. And so in that regard, the, the way to, I would encourage uh, to really write deeply is that writing is really listening with your heart and taking notes. And all of our intentions are merely kindling for when that comes alive. One of the hardest things to teach young writers is, you know, often young writers, you, you have a vision for a novel, a story, or a poem, or a play, or something, and you work uh, with great enthusiasm and passion, and then, it, you know, it starts to come alive, and it doesn't go where you thought it was going to go. And usually young writers, and I remember this when I was young, you know, you think, oh, I totally failed. Like, you know, I, I didn't do this right. I can't retrieve it. I can't make it go where I want it to go. And the hardest thing to teach young writers is, no, that's when it's start just starting. It's as if, you know, the mystery is saying, okay, now that I see that you're 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 really devoting yourself. Now I'll show you where this is really going. Hang on. And so we are asked to, you know, I think, I think this is, you know, Churchill said that planning is essential, but plans are useless. (laughs) And I think for me, that says, uh, we plan to ready ourselves, but we need to hold the plans loosely and throw them in the fire when things come alive. And follow, because, and this is where it ties that, you know, 
I mean, this is not just about writing and why I, why I wanted this to be more deeply about the life of expression. You know, in the Hindu tradition, there's a term Upa Guru, which means the teacher that is next to you at this moment. And of course, there's always a teacher next to you at, at any moment. But when we listen to the teacher that we hear that speaks to us, um, and we start to record that conversation, that's when we start to write authentically. And the, the other thing I would encourage is um, to, it's a different form of discipline, uh, not a stick to it that perseveres and is not distracted, but that to only write when you're in your heart. That when you start to slip up into Yeah, when you start to slip up to your mind, drop it. Drop it and let take in anything else, do something else until you can return to your heart. So, so even after all of these books and all of my my doing, so for me discipline is very different than it was as a as a younger uh, writer, because, you know, I, I can stay in that, in this space for, you know, days, (laughs) you know, that's not the, but, but that imprint, that manufacturing imprint is so great on all of us, even me after all this time. So I'm working and what I, what do I want to do when I work? Quote, I want to enter time. I don't want to move through it or by it. I want to enter, you know, so when I'm in it, that feeling that it's timeless. So when I'm in there, like, oh, my God, how, where did they go? And there I'm listening and I'm relating and I'm growing and I'm challenged. And I'm, and then, like, okay, I'm working like, you know, I'm home and my wife, Susan, you know, she's a potter and she's in her studio where she is right now. And then we, you know, and then so, like, uh, we work for the day and then say we're, you know, which we typically do, we come up and meet for dinner. So, you know, an hour before that, all of a sudden, if I'm, I'm aware now that we're going to meet for dinner, and then all of a sudden I have this thought, well, you know, if I, if I really focus here, maybe I'll finish this chapter before dinner. So discipline now is not doing that. Discipline is as soon as I've had that thought, I, it's now become an it. It's now become a product. I'm no longer in time. I'm now managing time. I'm no longer listening. I'm, uh, I'm controlling. And so now discipline for me at this point in my life is as soon as I'm aware that I've had that thought, I'm done. Drop it. Walk away. Pick it up another later or the next or tomorrow when I can come back to my heart. Well, first of all, it's the first definition of discipline I've ever liked and ever thought I could actually turn <laughs> on to that being in my heart. How do you return to your heart? Or how, I mean, what is it? I mean, is it a feeling? You're like, oh, mm-hmm. I, I know what just that. Like, oh, this is a recognizable feeling, and I'm there. Well, I'm not there. But can you evoke it? Yeah. Well, how I return to my heart is to lean in, hold nothing back and return to being completely present to whatever's before me. And one of the things that, that is difficult in our modern age is the avalanche of preferences we bury ourselves under. So that means like, you know, like 
you know, I don't, I don't want, I don't read, you know, movie reviews anymore. I don't watch trailers because I don't want, you know, it takes us away from the, uh, the wonder of just being here. Like I want to go to, uh, you know, if I see a bad play and you and I can argue, you know, say what a bad play, that's still a live play. And what a wonderful thing to be able to come out and say that it was terrible. Or if I hear music, you know, like, this is one of the things I'm not, I'm not like, you know, objecting to the music company, the app Pandora, but the principle under it, you know, how Pandora works, it, 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 you play something you like, and then it will refer you to something else you'll like. Mm-hmm. Well, then how do I ever hear anything I've never heard before? <laughs> how do I ever grow? I, and so the, one of the ways that I return to, I think we all return to our heart is to welcome life without preferences. You know, we got to look at 14 reviews of a restaurant before we go, well, I don't really, you know, that's not, you know, I'll just go and eat. And if it's no good, well, that's an experience. That's fine. And so, because the, what's, you know, while it more might be more pleasant to exercise our preferences, I find that, that it, I, I am more half-hearted the more I obey my preferences. And I'm more wholehearted when I can just meet experience without a preview or a review, <laughs> you know? And that makes things more real. And so, you know, another part of like we, you know, renewing my heart is just going, you know, calling up a friend and to tell me a story, anything, just anything that's not me. Like, I, you know, I, I need to be, I need to take something in, read something I've never read, hear something I've never heard, see something I've never seen. And that, the wonder of that will, will almost always refresh my wholeheartedness. You know, one of the things that made a big impact on me when I was reading Drinking from the River of Light is that in your writing, you're not so much approaching it as a way to share your answers. Like, I have these answers, I have these things I've experienced, I want to put them down and share them with other people. But you're exploring questions, things you're curious about, things you don't know. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. I wonder, I wonder how many people approach writing that way. Well, for me, this is very, you know, like, and, and you know, and I, I'm as amazed that I've written all these books, <laughs> you know, I, this is way beyond anything I imagine. I'm very grateful, but I think really the key to my being prolific has been that turn years ago when, um, I, I write about what I need to know, not what I know. I, you know, and the way I learn, the words are the trail of the inquiry. And, you know, if I had written about just what I know, I would have written very little. And, uh, and I think this is, uh, you know, it's something wonderful that, that um, I think you support with Sounds True is, is that, you know, whether it's the books or the tapes or whatever, it is about the life of questions and conversations and that that's what brings us alive. And it's changed how I understand questions because 
you know, questions in the circuit, the, the, the world of circumstance have answers like, you know, what time were we going to begin this interview? And, you know, what's the expiration date on milk? And when do I pick up my prescription? There's no, there's real answers to things in the world of circumstance, but in the world of essence, in the world of meaning and the world of spirit, questions don't have answers. We ask questions the way we would uh, open a door we want to walk through with someone. Questions lead to relationships, not answers. Questions in, in the inner world are like throwing a log on a fire to keep each other warm. Or, there, or questions are like a lantern we swing so we can see a few steps ahead of us. And so, you know, I, I do, I have a poem, I think it's in the way under the way that begins, you know, when someone uh, says to me, get to the point, I stop talking because there's no relationship. Yeah. You know, uh, related to this, this is one of the quotes I pulled out from the book. The truth is I barely understand half of what comes through me. The other half leads me. I thought, you know, wow, what a level of trust that is to write in that way where you're really opening up to something that comes through me. I barely understand half of what comes through me. The other half leads me. Well, and this is where I, you know, I feel, and, and again, that's why the whole, I use my experience as an artist and a writer and a teacher to open up in this book, what I feel is a process of learning and inhabiting and relationship that that's basic to, to the human journey. And that's what I think is so uh, valuable for me about what I've been able to retrieve, which I say, I retrieve my books rather than author them. And, and, so I feel like, you know, what I write becomes my teacher and I trust my heart's authenticity that, yeah, I have to retrieve this. And, um, I have, because there's something here and my heart is like a Geiger counter that says, no, just don't walk by this. And then I have to be with it so I can over time understand it. And I don't always, you know, and that, that's another myth is you know, just because I write it doesn't mean, you know, that I have, you know, the, uh, the meaning of it all. There's a wonderful Denise Levertov. I don't know if you remember her work or she was a British poet, British American poet who died maybe, Oh, eight years ago. Wonderful, wonderful poet. And she has this great poem called the secret where she's speaking at a college and, and before the reading two two giddy young college, uh, young women come up to her and they say, oh, my God, thank you, thank you. And they thank her because they've discovered the secret of life in a line in one of her poems. And then they run off. And she says, but wait, wait a minute. You didn't tell me the <laughs> secret or the poem or even what the line is. Wait, come back. And, and what's beautiful there is that, yeah, we, we discover meaning together. And, you know, today maybe I retrieve it and you... Have, and you have the insight into what it means. And tomorrow I, re, I uh, have the insight and you retrieve it. And, and so, yeah. And, 
um, I'm trying to think of an example in a poem uh, of mine. I have a poem uh, called The Industry of No, N-O, which just goes on about, um, you know, that there's more no than yes. You know, rather than saying yes to life, everywhere we go, there's no. And and it goes on and on and on. And all of a sudden at the end, there's this surprising image um, that I knew was the end of the poem, that even though there's, you know, there's a seminar in no, and people are, you know, doing all this research and the origins of no and all that. But then the image at the end of the poem is, uh, but they all went home and dreamt of white geese flapping in the ancient air. And I knew that that was the end of the poem. I didn't know where it came, where it came from. I knew that, that was the end of the poem. And uh, so I trusted that and, that and I wrote that. And then over time, I had to be with it to learn what was, what was it trying to say to me. And so I've learned over time, this is what it was saying to me. So I had to do, I had to look into birds and geese and how they fly. And what I discovered was, you know, when a bird fully spreads its wings, it has to lead with its chest. So it actually it has to lead with its heart. It can't open its wings completely without exposing its chest or its heart. So that, that's amazing. I, could, I couldn't come up with, I couldn't have made that up. I'm not that smart. So all of this talk of no, and because I was true to the feeling, the reward at the end of the poem was this image, which was a teacher out. Even even for all of our conscious and mental no no no, nothing nothing uh, extinguishes our deep want to lead with our heart. You know, Mark. One of the things I'm curious about is when a younger writer comes up with the draft, and it's clear that they haven't gone deep enough in some way. There's some way that they're still on the surface of what it is they're trying to uncover or retrieve and how you would point that person to hold less back in a certain way or deepen their retrieval process. I'm sure you've had lots of interactions like this with people who yeah. have shown you manuscripts and you have this sense like, you know, they're on the trail, but they got to go further. How do you help someone go further? Well, two suggestions that I know because, and you know, I know a lot of these things because I've violated them all the time. That's how you learn. So I've been there and I do that. And it still happens occasionally and after all this time. And I think two things that I try to do when I feel you know, I see someone else or I find myself in that place is the word revision. We have made it very small. Revision today means uh, cleaning, you know, being economical, pruning, taking out excess words, fine tuning. But the word revision really means go back to the original vision and look again. But if you're not quite there, go back to the heart of whatever the expression is about and get closer and get stiller and put your, your defenses down and ask questions of it and get closer. 
because I have found that, that over time that the closer I am to the source of whatever I'm trying to express, the less I have to do with the words. That the farther away I am, the more I've got to work in, uh, with the language. And I, I still, you know, I work on things to make sure they're as accessible as possible. But, but now what I do is if something is difficult and isn't working, rather than spend all this time uh, trying to reshape it, it's a sign to me I wasn't really open or, you know, my heart wasn't really there in the first place. So I may have been in the right dive spot, but I need to go back. I need to be go back and have an, a more open heart and see what comes then. So um, I can't remember what the other thing was right now. <laughs> we were telling I mentioned two, but it's, it's escaping right now. One thing I've heard you say, and it's a, a word I, when you mentioned it to me, it stuck with me because it's a word I love so much. But you talked about people having a certain fidelity, that's the word, to, yeah. uh, to their journey and that how important that is. And that if you steer away from that, that you can get you know, lost on the surface of things. Yeah, well, one of the, the paradoxes, and I, I talk about this in the book too, is that you know, our, our fidelity and, and that, by that I mean that we're we're honoring it's like a covenant with our own soul's journey, a covenant with our not not any one expression. Again, not a product, not a poem, not a story, not a you know, but a covenant and a commitment to the life. And we're back to that to the life of our expression to where that comes from and goes, not any one product of it, um, involves always giving attention more than getting attention. You know, that I think when I look back, I think I really started writing as a way to keep the wonder in view a little bit longer. Like I would see something or feel something or be like, whoa, or have an aha. And then it would start to, you know, disappear, go back into the fabric of life. And I go, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't quite have it. Don't go. Or this feels really good. I don't want this feeling to end. And so I, I think I started to write as a way to keep whatever it was in view a little longer. And so giving attention, recognizing and verifying is what enlivens our wonder and curiosity and our enthusiasm and and being in the in the world we spend a lot of time getting attention now some of that is necessary as a life skill but it's not a world view to live by it's a skill that has its proper place and uh, but when we get attention and we want to be recognized and verified, uh, when that starts coming in the foreground, we lose our connection to wonder. And then we start seeking attention rather than giving it. To, I mean, it's interesting that, you know, with our current, you know, society, we have 
you know, everyone is, you know, uh, wants to be a celebrity when we're all secretly aching for something to celebrate. Mm-hmm. And so, so there's this tension between giving and getting attention. And so, um, it's not to say, oh, you know, we all should you know, be hermits and not care. And no, no, we're in the world. It's fine. It's fine to be open and out there and uh, devoted to your path professionally, whatever it might be. But, but that's secondary. I have found to the journey of sustaining our wonder. And so again, whenever we feel like half-hearted or, or, you know, discombobulated or, you know, one of the things we can do is give our attention to whatever is before us. Just give our whole attention and recognize and verify whatever is before us. And then the connections between everything start to appear again. And then our feeling, we get back to that indigenous perception, we just don't see it. And then we start to feel it. Then we start, I mean, I think joy can be understood in one way as the sensation of oneness. You know, the heart is like a tuning fork. And when I can give attention and listen and be present and wholehearted, however briefly, to go back to our original part of our conversation, no one can do it all the time, but however briefly, then all of a sudden, being like a tuning for, I feel that I'm a living part in a living universe. And that kind of, however brief it is, is a sensation of joy. And that's more important than, uh, that's the real poem. It's not the words on the page. That's just a trail. Okay, Mark, there was one part of the book where I had this question mark that I wrote down in the margin. And I thought, huh, I don't know. I don't know what I think about this. And even in this conversation, you brought it up. And it's this idea that creativity can be creating something from nothing. And in this conversation, you said that's kind of a Western notion where we're, we're the great creators and we're making something mm-hmm. out of nothing. And in the book, you talk about, here's the quote, I realized that everything we create already exists somewhere in nature as an elemental form. And uh, there's another quote, our yearning to create is less about inventing something new than it is inhabiting a timeless form. And I thought to myself, but wait a second, you know, I've never been here quite like this before in, in this body, in this time, uh, in this configuration, it could be something new happening here. It might not just be discovering something timeless that's always existed in nature in some way. This could be a new moment. And anyway, I'm curious what you think about that. Well, um, you know, I, and I, I believe in yes and so yes to what you're saying and, and to what I'm saying and, and how they might yet, you know, present a third inclusive uh, sense, the paradox that holds both of it. So, so I do think that um, I do, I do think obviously from what I, what, what I'm sharing there that 
that in some ways, in some, and this is the difference, I guess, between incarnation and progress. Okay. So, um, I was exploring this the other day, so it's kind of interesting that how this comes up. So I think the part that is timeless is the fact that, well, here's a little story that maybe will hold a little of this little, little, you know, trying to think of something that would convey this. So imagine there's a, tri- uh, uh, a community, a tribe, they, they're emigrating from oppression. Uh, they go into kind of the wilderness and the forest and they, they get into a safe place. They climb to a, a plateau like, out, like in the Rockies, like out in Bold, you know, somewhere there's a plateau and they settle there and that generation, they clear all the, the trees so that they, they live there. They're for now, for the next generations, this is the home of this community. So the next their kids are born with that view of that vastness. And that's new. Their parents didn't have it. Their parents' generation cleared that land so their kids could be born with that, with that vastness always available to them. So that, that's progress. That, you know, at, at its best, um, we do stand on the giants of the, the shoulders of giants who came before us. And the best of progress is to leave something that wasn't there before for the next generation. Um, you know, they traipsed through those woods, they saw the possibility and they did their hard toil to create it so that their kids without doing anything were just born with it. So the other, the timeless part that there were everything has ever been that is, is our incarnation. And, and that for me is that every wisdom doesn't give us shortcuts. Wisdom supports us that every person who's ever lived from cave times till now to people a hundred years from now, 500 years from now, will have to go through the same human journey. And everyone gets a chance at their their incarnation, at their turn, at doing and facing and dealing with everything from birth to death to loss to grief to friendship to betrayal to tenderness to vulnerability, all the archetypes. And so in that respect, everything that we encounter and create through meeting life has, in one way, we will we might do it in a slightly different way. Just like you know, there are only so many notes right to music, and yet all the variations of music is created just from those eight notes. So in one way, it's unique, but in another way, they're all it's all coming from the same notes, and so. Um, so that's about as far as I've gotten with it so far. You know, I think what I really like about your answer is the yes, both and yes, yes. And, you know, a, a way to hold so many different perspectives at one time. That's one of the things I really appreciate about you and your work, Mark. Well, thank you. Uh, there's one more about this that comes to mind quickly that, it's not mine, but I'm recalling. So this goes back, this is a metaphor from the early third century 
uh, Christian uh, mystic desert fathers. And this is how they talked about this uniqueness and commonness. And they revoked the uh, metaphor of a wagon wheel. And they said, every spoke is like a soul on earth. And so in the wheel, if you, as you grow into your becoming, no two people or spokes or souls occupy the same space on the rim. Everyone has a unique place to hold up the rim and the rim is community. But in our being, when I go into my center, we all meet in the same hub in the center. So I go deep enough into me, I find you. And you go deep enough into you, you find me. And what's beautiful about the metaphor, it explains our uniqueness and our commonness um, and newness as well as this is timeless. But there's no, you take any one of those things out, you got no wheel. <laughs> you need this center, whatever you name the center, it falls apart. You take the spokes out, it falls apart. And without a rim, it's not a wheel. All right. Finally, Mark, I would love it if you would unpack for our listeners the title of this new book on the life of expression, Drinking <laughs> from the River of Light. Where did that title come from? So this this came from this is a wonderful story um, because as we were getting the book close you know closer and closer to being finished and I had a working title that was different and you Terry and Haven and um, were asking me well could I you know could I be with it and see if there was a like like you just said about going to a poem and you're you're there but you're not quite there you guys asked me well. Could I be open to seeing if there was a, a, a title that felt, you know, more right to me? So I was open to that. And um, I remember saying, I didn't, let's not lose the working title in case we didn't stumble onto one. <laughs> and, and then last summer I went to England uh, to speak. And I happened to be speaking in St. James Church, which is where William Blake was baptized. Well, for a poet, that's, that was quite a thing. So the, the, I was speaking at night, and I purposely went to the Tate Gallery, which has a room of Blake Originals, because I wanted to spend time in there during the day before actually going to the church and, and being and being there. And so I was in this Blake um, room of Originals, spent really like three hours there. And I, I know a lot about Blake, but I also learned something I didn't know, which was, and this was wonderful about um, that his creative energy and ambition is he wanted to illustrate, he wanted to do etchings, 107 etchings that illustrated Dante's Divine Comedy. And he did sketches for all of them, but he only had time before he passed away to do like, you know, six or seven. But so they had some of them there and I'm walking along and there is a sketch of Dante drinking from the river of light. And just like we mentioned earlier, like seeing light on a branch that says, you know, you can't walk by, it kind of holds you or a bird. This sketch, I couldn't walk away from. So I kind of sat down in front of it and I kept looking at it and looking at it and it became kind of alive, you know, and, um, and I was in conversation with it. And then I thought, wow, you know, he did not knowing it. I think he did a self-portrait here. This was Blake drinking at the River of Light. 
And then I kept sitting there, and all of a sudden I had this rush of adrenaline. I said, you know, I think that's like a self-portrait of me. And any artist or writer, um, this is kind of like uh, a moment here. And so I sat there and, and, and was with that, and, and that's where the title came, Drinking from the River of Light, because when we are, you know, that river of light is the life force that's running through all living things. And how do we drink from that river? It's through whatever meaningful personal form of expression we can discover and inhabit. So that that's how I came upon. And I remember uh, emailing Haven from the tape when I realized that that was the title. And I remember receiving it, drinking from the river of light and writing in all caps with an exclamation point. Yes. It's a beautiful, <laughs> beautiful title for a book by Mark Nepo on the life of expression. Also with Sounds True, uh, Mark has written the book Things That Join the Sea and Sky, Field Notes on Living, a book that won the Nautilus Book Award and was also cited by Spirituality and Health magazine to be one of the best spiritual books of 2017. Mark is one of the featured presenters at the upcoming Sounds True gathering, which benefits the Sounds True Foundation. It's taking place at the end of September. And Sounds True's also published a collection of three books of poems by Mark Nepo called The Way Under the Way. And Mark, you know, you've now introduced me to a definition of discipline that I think will both improve my writing and my life. So thank you so much. You're such a heart-centered communicator. It's a, it's a gift. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you, Tammy. You know, it's a joy to journey with you and, and the whole Sounds True family. Thank you for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at soundstrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I love getting your feedback, being in connection with you, and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. Working together, I believe, we can create a kinder and wiser world. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world. <laughs>